This morning's reading is from John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. It can be found on page 1083 in the Pew Bibles, but it's also on the screen. So it's 1083 in the Church Bibles. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you so much for reading that for us. Let's, let's pray as we study God's word together. Question us, Lord Jesus, this morning we pray. Search out the hidden depths of our hearts and minds. Expose the lopsided images that we have of you and give us a true sense of who you are in both your mercy and your justice. Amen. So I wonder if you've ever had the experience of reading the Bible and feeling like God is speaking to you directly, like he's read your mail. I hope so, because the Bible is a living word. It's not just a record of things that God said in the past. It's a way that God wants to engage with us here and now in the present. Questions asked hundreds of years ago have an amazing ability to speak to us and to our lives today. Uh, So take God's very, very first question in the Bible. Where are you? Spoken to Adam and Eve after their rebellion in the garden. It's a question that isn't just looking for GPS coordinates. You know, where are you? As if God didn't know but as a way of inviting Adam and Eve to consider where they were in relation to him. A way of almost saying, something's changed. 
You've moved. Tell me about it. And Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament. And Jesus is brilliant at asking the kind of questions that search us and make us listen in the depths of our hearts. Jesus' questions create spiritual space for us to discover more about ourselves and more about God. And so during this Lent, we want to let Jesus question us. Lent is a season for allowing God's gaze to search us out. And meditating on the questions he asks, I think, is an excellent way of trying to open our hearts to him. And so I want to encourage us then, over this period of Lent, to slow down and to consider how his questions speak to the deep inner recesses inside us, challenging us to explore what we really believe, not just what we say we believe, but what we really believe. I want to invite us to know yourself better so that you might better know Jesus. And so we start today with a question that Jesus posed to a woman caught in bed with a man who wasn't her husband. Found it in a compromising situation, to say the least. She'd been dragged through the streets to the temple courts to be brought before Judge Jesus. However, we learn from verse 6 that Judge Jesus is himself on trial. Because the religious leaders want to use this woman's plight as a trap to expose him who wants to, as someone who wants to overturn God's word. And just a, a side note, isn't it really interesting that the way they want to trap Jesus assumes that Jesus is bent is towards mercy? That's a really interesting observation. I bet he's going to be merciful to her. Death by stoning. That's what the law demands, isn't it, Jesus? But Jesus responds brilliantly. Whoever here has never committed a sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And one by one, the crowd dissipates until the woman is left all alone with Jesus. And then the question that we're considering today. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replies. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so today I want us to reflect together on that simple but profound question. Has no one condemned you? Lent is a season of penitence, a time to, to own up to our brokenness, plumbing the depths of the darkness that is within us that most of the time we either try and squash down or just plain ignore. It starts on Ash Wednesday with that rather sober, sober reminder that we're both mortal. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And sinful, turn away from sin and be faithful to Christ. And Jesus' question cuts to the heart of both of these. And so the main idea that I want to try and draw out for us from this story in John 8 is this. Jesus doesn't condemn sinners, but neither does he condone sin. Jesus holds together radical inclusivity and radical holiness, and so must we. So first, Jesus doesn't condemn sinners. Has no one condemned you, Jesus asks. No one, sir, she replies. Not, then neither do I condemn you. 
But just think about the story. This woman doesn't have a leg to stand on. She was caught in bed with a man who wasn't her husband. Frankly, it was an open and shut case. Now, of course, we could ask why the man wasn't dragged into the temple courts with her. Uh, the law said that both parties in the affair were culpable, not just the woman. But even ignoring that, it doesn't alter the basic fact of the matter. She was guilty. And it's worth noticing that neither Jesus nor the woman contest that at any point in the story. So the question isn't, has no one deemed you deserving of condemnation? The question is, has no one enforced the condemnation that you deserve? I said earlier that it's uh, really telling that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus in the expectation that he's going to be merciful to her. It strikes me there's something really rather beautiful in the fact that they have this strong hunch that Jesus is going to let her off the hook. I wonder, is that how we see Jesus? Do we see him as inclined towards us in mercy, even in the midst of our sin and shame? Hebrews 5 verse 2 says that a high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he knows of what the people he ministers to are made. He shares the same stuff as them. Well, Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus is our great high priest. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us, just as he does the women in this story. In his superb book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, Dane Ortland says this. He says, consider what all of this means. When we sin, we're encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a diluted view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Jesus deals gently with us. Even when we're banged to rights. Is that the Jesus you know? Who loves you even in your sin? We're treading on holy ground here, for this gets to the very heart of the gospel. And so let me just read you a few other verses from around the New Testament that drives home this same point that Jesus meets us where we are in our sin. So, Romans. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 5. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Who is it God justifies? The ungodly. Not the godly, the ungodly. Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we had cleaned up our act, Christ died for us. It doesn't say that. While we were still sinners. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. 
Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the righteous? No, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. So hear the good news loud and clear. Jesus loves sinners. Generations of believers have looked to the words of the servant song in Isaiah chapter 52, 53 as a prophetic picture of the Savior. Here's some of the words from it. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He bore the sin of the many and made intercession for transgressors. The woman, the guilty woman caught in her adultery isn't condemned because Jesus is condemned in her place. The scandal of the cross is that he bears our sins in his body. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 1 as well. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is grace for sinners who take refuge in Jesus. Has no one condemned you? No. No one has condemned you because Jesus himself is condemned in your place. The teachers of the laws and the Pharisees already had it in for Jesus. That's why they were trying to trap him in his words. How do you think they would have felt after this situation played out? Probably not too happy, right? They would have been livid. The very fact, uh, the very act that Jesus himself um, does this, exposes their, their hypocrisy, kind of serves to put a big fat black mark on Jesus' back. Sin is condemned, all right, but the sinner isn't. He is. He says a loud, resounding yes to sinners like us, not to our sin. And so that takes us into the second point this morning. Jesus doesn't condone sin. So contrary to a popular misconception, especially has to be said among liberal-leaning Christians, Jesus' last words in this story are not, then neither do I condemn you, but rather, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't condemn the sinner, but neither does he condone the sin. Notice that Jesus, when he's left alone with the woman, doesn't say to her, don't worry about it, it's not a biggie. He doesn't say to her, you're perfect just the way you are, don't change a thing. No, his reply makes clear that sin is a biggie. And that change on her part is the only appropriate response to the grace that she's received. You know, often when someone uh, hurts us in some way, we say, it's okay. But Jesus doesn't say that. It's not okay. Jesus hates sin. He hates it enough to crucify it in himself. 
So we need to hear this. Jesus might be easygoing on sinners, but he's not easygoing on sin. And if you don't believe me, then try and reconcile that view of Jesus with these words from the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, then cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Do you think Jesus is light on sin? No. It sounds pretty unequivocal to me. Jesus' grace is not a license to carry on sinning. Jesus might meet us where we are in love, but he loves us far too much to leave us in the sin that's disfiguring us. You see, here's the thing about sin. It's not just that it's an affront to God for which we incur his, his anger, his wrath and indignation against us, as the old prayer book puts it. It's that it's bad for us too. It twists our souls out of shape. It mars his image in us. It leads us away from knowing him and enjoying him, which is the very reason why we were made in the first place. So let me be clear then, there is nothing loving about letting people carry on in their sin without warning, or worse still, blessing it. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Do you want to know what God thinks about our sin? There's the answer. The cross is God's clear, categorical no to our sin. No, sin is not all right. It cost God's son his life. Tolerance of sin is a denial of the cross, a denial of the gospel, because it's only as we know sin as sin that we come to know grace as grace. If we say, hey, it's nothing, there's not actually anything to forgive, is there? He just said it was nothing. If sin isn't really sinful, there can be no true experience of forgiveness. And so our holy God says, I hate your lusting after porn. I hate the way that you use physical intimacy as play for grown-ups. I hate your constant gossiping. I hate your boasting, your arrogance, your pride. I hate it. And we don't want to hear this. Of course we don't. But we must if we're to fully appreciate the wonder of Jesus' loud, deafening yes to us as the people who do those things. The the golden-tongued 19th century prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, is right. Uh, Let me read out his words. He says, ho-ho, he's not Santa. Um, Ho-ho, Sir Surgeon. You are too delicate to tell the man that he is ill. You hope to heal the sick without their knowing it. You therefore flatter them 
And what happens? They laugh at you. They dance upon their own graves, and at last they die. Your delicacy is cruelty. Your flatteries are poisons. You are a murderer. Shall we keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumber from which they will awake in hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches? In the name of God, we will not. And so Jesus might not lead with the woman's sin, but he also doesn't ignore it. And he won't ignore it in us either. And I want to say, that's a good thing. Strong Coleman writes that love will always long for healing wherever it sees brokenness. And full reconciliation isn't possible without the healing of brokenness within us. Jesus wants to give us so much more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus wants us to become partakers of his own divine nature. He wants us to enjoy the kind of life that he enjoys. And what's more, he won't compromise on that. And that's really good news for us. Because it means that he wants you to be holy, and he's not going to rest until you are until you embody the holiness that he won for you at the cross and has made possible for you through the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. Jesus' goal for you isn't mere forgiveness, but reconciliation with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the fellowship of love that you were made for. That's really good news. And so what we see in Jesus then is this. He holds together radical inclusivity and radical holiness at the same time. It isn't either or. It's both. Jesus doesn't condemn sinners, thanks be to God. None of us is beyond the grace of God. But Jesus also doesn't condone sin. Thanks be to God. Jesus doesn't deny the sinfulness of sin just because it's popular, but calls us to holiness of heart and life. And this is a really difficult balance to strike, isn't it? But Jesus Jesus manages it, and, and therefore we, as the church, I believe, must also strive for it as well. Now, to some people, the call of... uh, the call to the kind of radical inclusion that Jesus demonstrates with this woman will seem like we're going soft on sin. But to other people, the fact that Jesus calls us to abandon our life of sin will seem intolerant and narrow-minded. And frankly, I think this is the mess that the Church of England has got itself into at the moment. So many people with the best intentions of expressing the expansive, all-encompassing, saving love of God in Christ have simply ignored Jesus' call to radical holiness or tried to redefine what the Bible means by that. But the counterbalance to that is not to swing the pendulum so far the the other way that we only focus on Jesus' call to radical holiness to the the exclusion of Jesus' example of radical inclusion. The full gospel is both. It is both, neither do I condemn you, and 
Go now and leave your life of sin. And the moment we tear those two apart, we're in danger of creating a false gospel, a gospel that isn't actually good news at all. So Jesus' radical inclusivity means that he loves us as sinners. We don't have to scrub ourselves up and make ourselves presentable to him before he showers his grace upon us. God's grace meets us where we are. Notice the order in which Jesus' conversation with the woman takes place. He sees the woman before he sees her sin. First he says, neither do I condemn you. Then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. And I think that's revealing. Grace comes first. Repentance isn't a prerequisite of God's saving grace, but it is a response to God's saving grace, without which it's clear we haven't actually received it. And what that means, first and foremost, is that people need to know that Jesus loves them where they are, as they are. But we also can't do that by pretending that sin isn't sin. And so liberal-leaning Christians need to see that Jesus doesn't bless the woman's adultery. Radical inclusivity doesn't mean ignoring sin, and it certainly doesn't mean celebrating it. That's not how we love someone. You don't love an alcoholic by buying them a case of wine. Jesus doesn't deny the sinfulness of sin. But he does deny the finality of her sin to define her. And conservative leading Christians, on the other hand, need reminding that we're not saved by our good moral record. Jesus said that he came as a doctor to the sin-sick which means that he spent his time with the wrong sort of people. So Jesus doesn't condone the woman's sin by any stretch of the imagination, but he doesn't let her leave without knowing that she is seen and loved. And that's why I personally grieve the direction that I see the church heading in, because it's starting to pull apart these two things that really must never be pulled apart. God's love, what it means to love unconditionally, isn't the same as saying that repentance is optional. Rather, as C.S. Lewis says, repentance is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. It cannot happen. A commitment to radical inclusivity doesn't mean ditching a commitment to radical holiness. And so what does this look like in practice then? Well, first it means that I want everyone to feel welcome here at Christchurch. I want everyone to know that their mess isn't a barrier to the grace of God reaching into their lives. I want everyone to know that the life-transforming love of Jesus Christ is for them. I want us to be a church of radical Christian inclusivity. 
And in the second place, it means that I want everyone to be helped forward on a journey of loving Jesus, learning Jesus, living Jesus. One of our values is that we want to think biblically. That is, we want to sit under the authority of the Bible. And so I want us to be a church that spurs one another on to living the life that God wants for us. To be a church of radical Christian holiness. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I believe that means that he's established the church to be a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for perfect people. So if you're a sinner here today, I want you to know you'll fit right in. And what's more, I want non-Christians to know that I'm almost certainly a worse sinner than you. Because when you sin from ignorance of God and Jesus, I sin from knowing him. We're all sinners here. So if you're a sinner... You are so welcome. But please also let me be clear that this church is a hospital, not a hospice. And what I mean by that is that sinners are welcome here on the same basis as patients in a hospital. Namely, that Jesus wants to make you well. Jesus isn't interested in giving you a comfortable last few days while the cancer of sin slowly eats up your soul. We here at Christ Church are in the business of resurrection, not death. So if you come here, you need to know that my hope for you, in the words of the Apostle Paul, is that Christ is formed in you. A true pastor's work, Paul says to the Ephesians, is to see that you are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God and created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. And so above all, I, I want to just help people to meet Jesus and let Jesus do the work because it's Jesus who transforms lives. It's him who gently assures us that there is no condemnation in him. And it's him who calls us to leave our life of sin and embark on the glorious adventure of obedience to his will. And my heart's desire for us here as a church community is that we're focused on Jesus. Because if we're focused on Jesus and we're truly encountering him as he reveals himself to us through the word, through the spirit, we will hear him say both, neither do I condemn you, and go now and leave your life of sin. If we're intent on meeting Jesus, the rest will follow. But it has to be the whole Jesus, not a lopsided Jesus. And so this, the radical inclusivity and radical holiness of Jesus pictured here in John 8, I think is a beautiful picture of the Lenten journey we're on. It's a journey to the cross. And it reminds us that there, are, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he was condemned in our place. 
And secondly, because Jesus isn't content to leave us where we are, but to call us further up and further in, up out of our sin and into a closer walk with him and his holiness. And so Jesus invites us to own up to our sin, safe in the knowledge that with him there is forgiveness and new life. But Jesus also commands those that are given that fresh start to forsake their lives of sin and live in total surrender to God's will. Tim Keller, that wonderful man of God who went to be with the Lord last year, captures the twin poles of the gospel that we see in this story perfectly. He says this, The gospel is this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If you're sat here this morning feeling weighed down by the mistakes of the past, the good news for you is this. There is cleansing for all your sins in the blood of Jesus. And if you're sat here today wondering, is this it for my life with Jesus? Then the answer is no. He's making you holy, Christian. He wants to make saints out of sinners like you and me. And that's really, really good news. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you that there is no condemnation for those who throw in their lot with you because you were condemned in our place. Thank you that you welcome us as we are, but you love us far too much to leave us that way. And so help us as a church to embody both radical inclusion and radical holiness so as to reflect the way that you deal with us. And Lord, we confess the ways in which we have failed that. We have swung the pendulum too far one way or the other. I confess the ways in which I've done that. By your Spirit, make the gospel more real, more beautiful to us than ever before through this Lenten season. And not just in our heads, but much more importantly in our hearts. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.